0: Good afternoon and good morning to those who are not watching from the East Coast. My name is Jeff Singer, I'm a practicing surgeon and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. 51 years after President Richard Nixon initiated the latest war on drugs, overdose death rates have reached historic highs and have grown exponentially since the late 1970s. The CDC estimates more than 100,000 people died from overdose deaths during the 12 months ending in April, 2021. Roughly 77,000 involved opioids, 83% of which involved illicit fentanyl. One in five of the more than 2 million incarcerated Americans are there for drug-related crimes and they're disproportionately minorities. The war on drugs is an abject failure. In 1862, President Abraham Lincoln addressed Congress before signing the Emancipation Proclamation saying, "Quote: the dogmas of the past are inadequate to the stormy present. As our case is new, we must think anew and act anew. We must disenthrall ourselves and then we shall save our country. The death and destruction in the wake of 51 years of failed drug policy calls on Americans to think and act anew again. Recognizing the failure of the drug war, Portugal decriminalized all drugs in 2001 and redirected resources to harm reduction and rehabilitation of substance use disorder. Portugal's success in reducing overdose deaths and the spread of HIV and hepatitis without an increase in teen drug use has served as a model for other countries. Similarly, Czechia and Uruguay treat personal possession and use of illicit drugs as a health issue, not a crime issue. In November, 2020, Oregon voters approved the proposition decriminalizing drug possession and use within the state's borders. However, some scholars believe decriminalization doesn't go far enough. They argue for full legalization and regulation, much as was done with alcohol prohibition. To discuss these two fresh approaches to drug policy in the United States, we're fortunate to have with us three very expert people with unique knowledge of the subject. Congressman Earl F. Blumenauer represents Oregon's third congressional district since 1996 and has expertise in marijuana and other drug policy reforms. He has been a lead sponsor of bipartisan legislation to legalize marijuana, and recently led a bipartisan group of lawmakers in urging the Drug Enforcement Administration to stop blocking access to therapeutic psilocybin treatment for terminally ill patients. He's also co-sponsor of the Drug Policy Reform Act introduced in July 2021 that would decriminalize drugs at the federal level. Dr. Carl L. Hart is a psychologist, neuroscientist, and psychopharmacologist and Ziff Professor of Psychology at Columbia University. He's the author of numerous books, including most recently, Drug Use for Grown-Ups, Chasing Liberty in a Land of Fear. He's a leading expert on the neurochemical effects of drug use and has supervised government approved research on the use and effects of various currently illicit drugs. Trevor Burris is Research Fellow at the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies, Editor-in-Chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review, and author of numerous works on drug prohibition and drug policy. After each of our experts share their thoughts, we will engage in a conversation and take questions from viewers. Please submit your questions on the Cato event website or on Facebook or Twitter using the hashtag, hashtag CatoHealth. Let me begin with Representative Blumenauer. Uh, Representative Blumenauer, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Please share your thoughts on how you think we should think anew.
1: Thank you, Jeff. It's always a pleasure to talk about drug policy with my friends at Cato. Uh, This is an area that uh, you have been steadfast and very helpful and insightful. Uh, It's an area that I've been involved with throughout my public service career. Uh, Oregon was the first state to decriminalize cannabis in 1972. And we've been on the pioneering side in terms of uh, medical marijuana, legalization, um, and more recently, uh, this last, uh, in the fall of 2020, uh, we moved forward in the next steps in terms of uh, a measure that uh, passed with 50, over 55% of the vote. Uh, that authorized psilocybin uh, therapy in a supervised fashion, which I think has tremendous potential in terms of dealing with addiction, uh, end of life. I mean, it's a whole array of opportunities um, to take advantage of something that's been known uh, to humankind for millennia. At the same time, we approved with a 50, over 58% uh, our measure Uh, to uh, uh, decriminalize and focus on addiction treatment. Um, I think this is the wave of the future. We're not quite Portugal yet in Oregon, but we have demonstrated, we have demonstrated that there is broad public support for these concepts. Um, And they are uh, frankly an antidote to a failed war on drugs. Jeff, you mentioned the the sorry history of over half a century. Um, It's hard to, I think, fully convey the magnitude of these destructive policies at a time when we are watching people cry out for racial justice in this country, uh, to look at the tragic consequences of this war on drugs, largely focused against people of color, especially young black Americans, um, it's devastating. Uh, it, from 1980, uh, we've, I wanna get the number right, I think it's uh, incarcerated in prison or jail for drug crimes since 1980, has gone from 40,000 people to over 500,000 people. Our prisons are filled with nonviolent drug offenders. And we can deconstruct in terms of why they did it, uh, but for many, uh, it was uh, uh, simply an extension of how they survive under difficult circumstances. Um, I mean, I've heard story after story of people talking about for young folks in uh, urban America, uh, in the face of blight, in the face of economic upheaval, and in, in the face of uh, economic and social distress, there were two paths for young people. Go to the military, deal with drugs. Um, it's, uh, it's a story that in terms of Avwe's incarcerated um, hundreds of thousands of people, uh, it damages their potential to be able to survive Uh, outside of prison, prisons have turned into tutorials, community colleges for people who would be uh, involved with drug dealing. Um, I mean, it is just a sad, sorry commentary on a repeated series of failures that have been visited upon the poor and people of color, and it didn't work. We have a wider array of drugs available now than when they started the war on drugs. There are more people who are addicted. Uh, There are uh, a wider array at lower cost, but the real cost has been on individual citizens who get caught up in this, and it is pastime for us to do a complete reset. Uh, I strongly supported the ballot measures in Oregon uh, to be able to deal with the potential for psilocybin. I think there's a real uh, opportunity in terms of dealing with addiction um, and the federal government, as you know, has been involved with this for decades, for decades. Uh, well, it's it's time that pull it out of the closet, to look at it, to deal with it in a supervised and regulated fashion, and be able for people uh, to do the research uh, and be able to have the application. We, For example, we, uh, we've uh, fought to have the right to try uh, legislation um, available uh, to terminally ill people who want to deal in terms of psilocybin with the federal government. Um, the notion that we're going to redirect our resources uh, to be able, in Oregon, uh, I'm, uh, we have uh, this legislation that made a small amount of drugs punishable by simply a $100 fine, which could be waived if people decide to uh, be involved with a health screening process. Um, this is the first anniversary of the legislation this this month. Uh, We've been able to devote uh, tens of millions of dollars uh, for peer support and crisis line support, provide services to 16,000 people, um, 60% of which engaged in harm reduction services. We provided grants for harm reduction, um, support for tribes and tribal organizations, Uh, And to uh, deal with uh, overdose reducing, reversing drugs. I mean, trying to deal with the problem in a thoughtful and rational fashion. And at this point, it continues to be popular and supported in Oregon. And we're inundated with people around the country who want to see how it's working, because we need to learn together in this. I don't pretend that Oregon has all the answers, but I think we're started in the right direction. And I look forward to further conversation with you, because this is what ultimately the federal government needs to do, is end the failed war on drugs and be able to build on the successful models we've seen in Portugal. And I think that we're building in Oregon. I appreciate the chance to be with you and look forward to the conversation.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, Carl, uh, I'd be interested to hear your comments and reflections uh, not only on how to think anew, but what uh, Congressman Blumenauer had to say.
2: Uh, Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for inviting me and thank you to Cato. Um, Thank the Congressman for being here. Um, I'm really uh, interested to see how Oregon goes. I think they, they're leading the nation in terms of decriminalizing drugs. So um, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I haven't been doing many public events recently, in part because I recently tore up my wrist. And I, uh, you know, you go to the doctors now, you can't get opioids because everybody's so paranoid. So I'm in Uh, excruciating pain. Um, That's just in the background for us to understand. Um, But what I like to do is, first of all, I wanna kind of put this thing in in, in context. Uh, We've said here a few times here today that the war on drugs has been an abject failure. And that's not honest, that's not true. Uh, The war on drugs has been hugely successful. Uh, that's why it continues Uh, when things are a failure we don't typically continue them in this country Um, now when I say it's been a success it's been a success for a select group of people like uh, law enforcement. their budgets are padded people are hired in law enforcement jobs went away in the the rust belt of the country we replaced them with law enforcement jobs security jobs jobs that are uh, supporting the war on drugs The media benefits, Uh, you can tell crappy stories as long as you talk about some drug dealer or something, people buy that nonsense. And so um, I have benefited as a scientist, I had million dollars worth of grants um, um, focused on trying to understand the awful effects of drugs. So there are many beneficiaries of the war on drugs, that's why it continues. So let's just be clear about that now uh, i want to uh, take us back to the founding of the country if we will just to be uh, so we understand who we are as americans the original promise in the country says that we all have three birth rights life liberty and the pursuit of happiness Uh, meaning essentially you can live your life as you see fit so long as you don't prevent other people from enjoying those rights um, and, and and then in the sentence, like right after that, it says that government should be disbanded when they fail to secure those rights. Now, when we think about uh, people who might use drugs, um, many of them are doing so in their pursuit of happiness, and they're exercising their liberty. So the question becomes for me, uh, why have we somehow banned drugs Uh, we prevent people from enjoying that liberty. Um, Well, then we have to understand that the war on drugs didn't start in 1971 with Richard Nixon. The war on drugs uh, officially started in 1914 when we passed the first national laws restricting drugs. And we passed those laws primarily uh, because of our hatred of Black Americans and Chinese Americans. Um, we restricted opioids because of the Chinese and cocaine because of Black people. So that history I talk about in my, in my book, Drug Use for Grownups, and you can check that out. But I just wanted to make sure that we have some context here, that we clearly understand what's going on. Uh, now, when we think about where we are today, um, Oregon has led the way in term, in the United mm-hmm. States in terms of decriminalizing drugs Trying to make things right. Um, that, uh, but it's important for us to understand that decriminalization simply means that people are uh, people won't be arrested or criminally charged for possessing drugs. Drug sales still remain illegal. What that means is that decriminalization does nothing for the black market or does nothing to ensure that people have drugs with uh, some sort of quality control. Now people will still get drugs that contains contaminants. And that's a major concern because the contaminants are why people are uh, oftentimes dying or getting in trouble with drugs. Another concern with decriminalization is that um, uh, police can still selectively arrest uh, people that we don't like. Uh, let me just give you an example. Uh, Baltimore, for example, decriminalized cannabis in nineteen uh, in, in, in 2014. Between 2015, between 2015 and twenty fourteen. Between twenty fifteen between twenty fifteen and twenty seventeen, the Baltimore police arrested uh, more than fifteen hundred people for cannabis. Possessions. 96% of those people were Black, even though Baltimore only has a a Black population of 60%. Similar sort of numbers happened in New York, New York City, when New York City uh, decriminalized uh, cannabis. So decriminalization is a nice intermediary step, but it is not the end goal. Please understand that. The end goal is legal regulation so we can have quality control. Uh, Between 1920 and 1933, the United States uh, prohibited alcohol. That's when alcohol prohibition occurred. During that time, tens of thousands of Americans were killed or maimed from tainted alcohol. When we reversed prohibition in 1933, those deaths dramatically decreased because we had quality control. And so in order to get a a better understanding and control of the current situation, we need to legally regulate. That would enhance the quality control. Now, when we think about uh, the pearl clutches, when people are, are, are... concerned about this sort of thing. I I get it. There are ways that we can do this in a way that it's safe. We can control. um, We can uh, control the the, the folks. Uh, We can have age requirements. We can have competent requirements. We can have a number of things in order to enhance the safety of this activity. Uh, Just just think about this for one second. Guns are legal in the United States. Guns uh, are designed to kill people. And and drugs are illegal, and drugs for the most part, and we never talk about this. Drugs, uh, these drugs that we're talking about, psychoactive substances, they bring people happiness, they bring people joy, bring people together. I understand that some people get addicted, but that's a small minority. But we oftentimes go to the frame of addiction as if it's inevitable and it's not. Um, Addiction has more to do with the social context than the drugs themselves. But we act like addiction is about the drugs and they are not. Uh, The problem is the people who who engage in this conversation don't look at the science and don't look at the evidence. Um, um and so if you do you would understand that and by the way i am not suggesting that we should ban guns that's not the argument the argument is that uh, we are trying to regulate guns in a way to keep the population safe but also make sure that they are available for people who use them and uh, uh, or need them for uh, whatever reasons um, and we can do the same thing with drugs. Um, um, and, and if if that doesn't uh, cause some people, some dissidents, to understand that we are doing this with guns, but we uh, we haven't even tried to do it with drugs, then something's wrong. Um, I I, I want to leave my comments there and um, let Trevor speak, and, and and then I'll join you all back in the conversation in a bit.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, Trevor, let's see what you have to say. Ah, uh, well, thank you, Jeff. Uh, thank you, Congressman
3: Blumenauer. Thank you, Carl Hart, uh, for those words. Um, it's tragic. This is the. There's really no other word for what the drug war is. Uh, this background I have here, actually, is Independence Hall in Philadelphia, where they wrote the Constitution. I'm glad that Carl brought up the Constitution and the freedoms that we are guaranteed by that document or, or guarantees those freedoms. And it's, a, it's sort of strange if you think about it. I mean, I, I work as a constitutional lawyer, and one of the things that's strange is that we had to pass an amendment to the Constitution to prohibit alcohol. And then we passed another one to take away that amendment. But we prohibit drugs by statute. Uh, doing the exact same thing and doing the kind of damage that these prohibition statutes do, I'm very very glad that Carl you know defended the fact that, as his book says, drug use for grownups, which I highly recommend, adults are presumed to have the ability and 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 right to alter their consciousness, uh, in many different ways And we are completely okay with doing that when it comes to alcohol, when it comes to tobacco, it comes to caffeine and the many other substances. But there's something about these other drugs uh, that apparently means we're not allowed to alter our consciousness. Now, I want to be very clear, I'm not going saying you should go out and do all these drugs. But what, what I do want to say, and, and Carl has done excellent work on this subject, is that opioids, cocaine, uh, you know, marijuana, alcohol, they all kind of follow the same pattern, which is that of the users consume about 80% of the drugs and 20% of the users could be called so-called problematic users, however you wanna define that. We know that for alcohol, for example. We allow people to drink alcohol because we believe in adults can do this, and most people, although there will be huge social harms, most people will do it responsibly. We have licensed drug dealers, otherwise known as liquor stores, uh, that are regulated by the government so people know what is inside the alcohol and allow people to responsibly consume this. Uh, the weird thing from the libertarian standpoint is this is the one area where people seem to think that prohibition is the ultimate form of regulation. Prohibition is the absence of regulation. It's complete anarchy. Uh, the one time where I'll be like, we need more regulation is in an area like this, where we have complete anarchy reigning and people dying to the tune of 100,000 people a year uh, because they don't know what drugs they're taking, because they're tainted with fentanyl and numerous, numerous other problems. And that's the context here, right? We need to, we need to have the context about why the drugs that that are illegal or prohibited why those drugs versus other drugs. And, and Dr. Hart pointed out that, that it has racial component to it. It has a huge, I, mean, it, you, I think a lot of people think that scientists got together, listed the hundred most dangerous drugs from top to bottom and then just prohibited them in order and put them into different schedules. But this is of course not true. Uh, drug prohibition basically resides, but it depends on three different concepts. One is the perception of the drug user what kind of person uses that drug, especially what kind of race they are. Uh, Two, perception of the drug. What does the drug do to you? So when marijuana was first, the first federal marijuana law, the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937, uh, there was a perception that marijuana made you into a psychopath. Uh, And most people who seemingly, most members of Congress and senators who voted for that act were, many of them were not clear even what it was because they intentionally chose the word marijuana rather than the more common with the, with the Spanish connotations, the Mexican connotations, rather than the more common word cannabis, which people were quite familiar with. Uh, and then three, the other tenet of the drug war is the dehumanization of the drug user. We, we have had a big movement over the last decades to humanize people who, alcoholics, for example, mental health in general, to say, you have problems with alcohol. I'm going to treat you as a human being. We understand that people get into problems with alcohol because they are coping with something in their life. They're coping with past trauma. We understand that for alcohol. We do not seem to understand that at all when it comes to opiates. We have this idea, this puritanical sense that the reason people are, consuming opiates is is categorically different than alcohol and that they're pursuing some sort of hedonistic, morally tainted kind of high, as opposed to trying to cope with the day and get through it. And and instead what we do via the prohibition regime is that we push them into these dangerous drugs. And it's even worse than just tainted drugs. We push them into the most potent forms of these drugs. We saw this happen immediately after the Harrison Narcotics Act in 1914 we saw that people who could get opiates on the shelf in the form of laudanum or different sort of soothing syrups and a bunch of different over-the-counter things, uh, those things disappeared. uh, And suddenly the only thing they could get was morphine and then eventually heroin. This is called the iron law prohibition, by the way. This is is one of the most important concepts to know when thinking about prohibition. Uh, We can go to the alcohol prohibition. Before alcohol was prohibited, the most popular drinks in America were beer and wine, just as they are today. But after how, after alcohol prohibition came in, beer and wine essentially disappeared from the black market because it's hard to smuggle something that is not that potent. So for this very same reason that if you've ever smuggled alcohol into a sporting event, which I'm sure none of the upstanding people here have ever never done that. But if you've never done that, you probably did not take a 12-pack. You probably took a flask of something highly potent. This is precisely why, and and the moment, by the way, alcohol prohibition ended, people went back to beer wine. Precisely why we've killed about 70,000 people due to fentanyl. And let me be very clear. Those deaths are on our consciences. They are part of the drug war. People did, Dr. Singer can say, people prescribe and administer fentanyl all the time safely. fentanyl is being chosen by drug smugglers because it's so incredibly potent that it's impossible to stop. And let me make, make clear, it is impossible to stop. The more you crack down, the more the drug smugglers prefer the higher potency version of the drug and therefore put drug users in extreme danger when you're talking about one of the most poisonous substance on, on the planet. I mean, in strict form, fentanyl is more poisonous than strychnine and other, and arsenic and other more, more po- traditional poisons. But it's not really a demand side phenomenon. I mean, there are people who demand fentanyl, but I can guarantee that no one demands fentanyl if they don't know what's in their drugs, because the difference between dying and getting high can be just a few milligrams of fentanyl. So you would want to know what is in the drugs to begin with. So that's very clear. You take away prohibition, you make legal, you give people safe supply. We could talk about what that means. Because again, when we say legalization, we have to be very clear what we mean. Like alcohol is not just legal. You have to be of age. The people who produce it have to go through a different regulation. The people who sell it have to go through different regulations. Alcohol is not just legal. Cocaine is more legal than heroin. Prescription drugs are somewhat legal, but not completely over-the-counter legal. But if we made some form of safe supply for people to get this, for, for people who are chemically dependent upon opioids in particular, we would save conservatively 50,000 people uh, it's not even that it's not, I would say even exaggeration, We would save the lives of conservatively 50,000 people. So it's time to start thinking differently. I mean, I think, it, you know, maybe a Cato a rear radical, you know, 1985 saying this stuff, but now people have to know that prohibition does not work. And not only does it not work, it makes things worse in every possible way for the people who use drugs. And so the thing we have to do is humanize, love and care for people who happen to use substances that are on the disapproved list, just as we do for alcoholics. And that's the way we move forward. I like how Dr. Hart said this when we were talking before, he has a love supreme uh, behind him there on the shelf. And that is ultimately the way out of this is to actually stop dehumanizing opioid users in particular and treat them like human
0: beings. uh, And maybe we could find a different way. Thank
3: you and I look forward to the conversation.
0: Thank you, Trevor. Uh, Congressman Lunar tells us that he has to leave in about five minutes because he has an important uh, vote he has to, to make. So I want to direct this question at him so he can get his thoughts on this. Um, safe injection sites, as you know, are a proven harm reduction strategy. Uh, they've been reducing overdose deaths and the spread of disease since the late 1980s. Uh, they operate through much of the developed world, including Europe, Canada, Australia. But here in the United States, the crack house statute makes them federally illegal. We now know that the, the Biden Justice Department is considering maybe uh, accommodating them even though the previous Justice Department was threatening prosecution when a group in Philadelphia wanted to establish a, a safe consumption site. Uh, even if we decriminalize drugs, if the Drug Policy Reform Act were to pass, wouldn't that require separate legislation such as repeal of the crack house statute if we're going to allow uh, an effective harm reduction like safe consumption sites to be able to function in the United States, Congressman?
1: Absolutely. Uh, we've got uh, Watson Coleman moving on specifics of a bill that would help in terms of this, uh, but we knew the the crack house statute is a manifestation of what uh, Trevor uh, was talking about. I mean, this is insane uh, in terms of the uh, magnifying the impact of prohibition, distorting people's behavior, and not being able to deal with them directly. I appreciate the effort, the reference to what happened during Prohibition in terms of all the people who were poisoned by uh, clandestine alcohol. Uh, It is apparent that the the political reaction in terms of trying to make it harder to deal with needle exchanges, to have uh, uh, medication that reverses the impact of overdose. Uh, these are uh, sad, misguided political responses that make the situation worse. Uh, I long for the day where we're able to have a reset, um, as your uh, my other fellow panelists have been talking about. This is what we would do in a rational world.
2: You don't have to look
1: very far at what's happening in Washington, D.C. to understand that we're not in a rational world. Uh, A lot of this is counterintuitive. A lot of it is destructive. Um, You would think that our experience with prohibition ought to have made that point. Sadly, the burden of this has fallen Uh, wildly disproportionately. Uh, I I really appreciate uh, Dr. Hart's research and his passion because he's correct and taking us back over a hundred years of history. Uh, It ought to be clear. It is clear to me. It's increasingly clear to the American public. Uh, The need is to break through the political shackles but I think we're making progress. That's why we've moved uh, in terms of cannabis, why we're trying to broaden the conversation with psilocybin, but to be able ultimately to talk about the impact of prohibition and its failures. Um, I think the American public is with us. Uh, I'm hopeful that we're gonna have the patience to be able to move this through the political process, but not too much patience. People ought to be outraged about what's happened uh, in terms of the the failure and the people who paid the price. Uh, I'm pleased in a small way to advance this uh, in Congress and to be supportive uh, championing efforts in Oregon. Uh, But uh, we need to have a sense of urgency to be able to deal with the facts as presented by my colleagues, uh, because that's the only path forward. Is there a way, time for me to squeeze in
0: one more question? for you, Congressman, and then before you, I know you have to leave and then, uh, Carl Hart could follow up with on that. It's about, uh, diamorphine also called diacetyl morphine. That's, uh, that's a a very effective opioid that's on the formulary in much of Europe, Canada, the UK. Um, but it was for reasons that I have yet to figure out was banned in the United States because it had a brand name called heroin. Um, and, uh, what do you think about the idea, at least in the short term, of getting heroin moved to schedule two so that at least it could be used, because we know it has a medical use and this way it could be used for heroin assisted treatment programs, uh, which exist again in Canada, in Switzerland, and many countries in Europe, because uh, in some cases methadone is, le- for some people methadone doesn't work and heroin does.
1: Right. Well, I'm ambivalent about that. It might, uh, there, it would uh, be helpful Uh, with uh, the reschedule. But sadly, I think the real need here is to just completely abandon what we've done with the scheduling system, and go back dealing with something on a rational basis. Uh, Going to schedule two um, might help in the short term, but I think it's just kind of masking the problem we've got with a system that is really irrational and not particularly productive. Uh, And it's delaying what we need to do with the larger reset.
0: Okay. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Carl, would you like to comment on that? And I know that that the congressman has to go. I really appreciate you having the time out of your busy schedule to be here.
2: You know, Jeff, Jeff, I think uh, since we have the congressman, it might be helpful to like ask him about his expertise in terms of what might the American public do better to um, support uh, his, what he's doing in Congress and in order to get these changes? Um, but asking him about the pharmacology and that sort of thing, I don't think that's outside of his wheelhouse. Um, how can we, uh, as a public, um, um, support you and people like you who are trying to get changes? What do we need to do?
1: Well. I think being able to continue what we've done in cities around the country, what we've done in states around the country, where we go directly to the people, bypass a lot of the experts, bypass the legislative process that can be captured by people who have a punitive and narrow-minded view, I have tremendous confidence in our being able to take this message to the public. That's where we've been making progress on cannabis. That's where we're making progress in terms of decriminalization broadly. Um, the people get it. The people understand uh, the power of uh, what you've reported on in your writing, and your research. And I think ultimately it's the people that are going to rescue us uh, from uh, this uh, continued uh, insanity of the war on drugs. Thank, thank, thank you. you very- Thank we you bet. very
0: much for coming. Thank you, uh, Trevor. Did you want to
3: say something about this? I, I think that's entirely correct uh, what the Congressman just said, and, and that, and also what Doctor Hart said at the beginning of his remarks, which I thought were very well chosen. Like when you say the drug war doesn't work, you need to define what you mean by work because it might work for certain constituencies, and that, and that's almost the, per, the even more perniciousness of it because you do have something, for example. Uh, beginning with racial or racist overtones. But now it's almost, it can be almost worse when you play that game forward. Because, say, in 2009, I believe it was when California was trying to legalize, become the first state to legalize marijuana, who spent the most money opposing that? Prison guard unions. And they were, you know, I I guarantee that many of them were not doing that because they were racist. They were doing that because it was a jobs program. And if you turn the, gov- the, the drug war into a jobs program, which it is for so many people, you have all of these interests that are difficult to fight against. Uh But the people, I think the Congress is correct. The people are get it, at least to some degree. I mean, I feel like, you know, when I was, a teenager, I would advocate for drug legalization and and people thought I was crazy. But now I think if you go up to the average person, you say, what do you think about legalizing drug? And again, I want make that clear. Jeff, you asked about making mm-hmm. heroin schedule two. This is available. I, mean, I, I say legalize heroin, which is to say, in this example, make it as legal as fentanyl. So right, fentanyl is more legal than heroin because Dr. Singer, as a doctor, can prescribe fentanyl, and I think you do it about every day, uh, or or quite often to people for medical uses. Uh, So heroin is less legal than fentanyl. And people say, oh, what's going to happen if we made heroin Schedule 2? Well, cocaine is also Schedule 2. And I don't see, uh, you know, this is not really affecting the market. It just affects the kind of regulation and treatment people can get. And Dr. Singer is completely correct, and I'm sure Dr. Harkin can weigh in on the fact that if you're if you are someone who is compulsively using opioids and you decide that you want to quit that's the first thing you have to decide you want to quit you can't you can't be forced into this but if you decide you want to quit you need to have many many options available to you to able to be able to quit including possibility of prescription heroin Like you need to have them available. Maybe methadone works for some people. Uh, It's very similar to trying to quit smoking. Does vaping work for some people? Does the patch work for some people? Does the gum work for some people? Well, you want all those options available and you don't want the prohibition to come in and create a problem. Like, for example, today. So I am a nicotine addict. I vape nicotine. I don't smoke anymore. But due to the restrictions on shipping of nicotine of vaping products, I have not been able to get a new supply. And I'm seriously considering going buying a pack of cigarettes. Well, this is exactly what people do when they lose their supply of, of opiates and go to get heroin in the black market. So we just need to have regulated safe supply and do this like adults.
0: Oh.
2: So, Trevor, just to uh, just to modify your nicotine addiction thing, so the listening audience understands that addiction is the uh, disruption of psychosocial functioning as a result of the substance, and the person who uh, uh, we're talking about is distressed by the, those dis- those disruptions. So, I don't know if you would meet the sort of classic or the medical definition of addiction. Um, I I make that point because in our society, we use the word uh, loosely and then that way, that's the way we kind of take over this conversation. Um, The conversation is always hijacked by addiction. Uh, Addiction, as we all pointed out, uh, make up a a small percentage of the people who use the substance, but we always go to the frame of treatment and addiction. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons that we've been banning these substances, because we have this sort of skewed perspective of what happens with these drugs. It's like thinking about... Uh, Cards, if you want to talk about cars. I don't know, you may like fast cars. But then the, the, the only conversation that the people are wanting to have are car accidents. That's stupid. That's what we do with drugs. And, and so when we think about drugs, you nicely pointed out uh, the John Code train Love Supreme. That's what I think about. I think about uh, being a better person. I think about being more magnanimous. I think about being more empathetic. I think about all of these things in terms of which makes me feel better, uh, which increases the likelihood that I would treat other people better. All of these sort of things need to be discussed when we're talking about drugs. And we don't, but we're always talking about the poor person who is addicted. For example, we think about uh, supervised consumption facilities, which are uh, important to have in any society as wealthy as ours. It just means that people can go to a place in which they can safely use, and you have some medical um, help there if you need. But let's be clear, the people who are going to those facilities are people without houses, You know, I use drugs. I would never go to one of those facilities because I want to use in the privacy of my own space. Um, But we act as if that's a drug problem. That's not a drug problem. That's a housing problem. All of these things become other problems, but not a drug problem. But the people who are delivering these services, one of the ways they get money and attention is to pretend that these are drug problems. These are not drug problems. All of these sort of conflations are the reasons why we have this awful policy. So we have to be absolutely clear when we're talking about uh, of, of, of this subject and we have to be real precise in, in, in our discussions.
0: You know, that's, it's interesting you, you just said that. There's a question that came in from YouTube uh, from owner Yurik saying, what are some ways to tackle the misaligned, misaligned incentives Uh, Such as, you know, success for cops, success for politicians, and also success for people in the the rehab industry by maintaining this war on drugs.
2: I I think about with with cops, for example, um, um, we need to redirect their efforts such that uh, there is an important uh, service that happens outside of this country called drug checking where people can submit small samples of their substances and have them test it. And then they get a a chemical uh, printout of the chemicals that are in them. Uh, We can have cops um, actually help people to do those sort of things. We can have, we can forbid cops from arresting these folks. Instead, um, uh, making sure that uh, we uh, uh, use them in support of people's uh, activities as opposed to uh, preventing people uh, from engaging in these activities. Um, In terms of the treatment industries, um, you're not going to really help people um, uh, in terms of the drug sort of scene uh, who are having problems. If you're not tackling co-occurring psychiatric illnesses, if you're not tackling pain issue, if you're not tackling housing, employment, all of these sort of things, if you're not tackling nodes, many of the people who are delivering services, uh, drug treatment services, are simply not qualified to be delivering services, and so um, we haven't said that sort of thing. Um, and if we're not tackling poor parenting in this country, all of these issues are all are, are masquerading as drug problems when, in fact, there are these other problems. And so, if we're not shifting people's skill set to deal with those issues, then we're not going to do anything.
0: I'd like to say uh, uh, when it comes to the mis- mis- this conflation of addiction and dependency, I see this all the time in my medical practice. I'll have patients who uh, they may have been hospitalized for a very se- severe critical illness. They were not in the intensive care unit for weeks and they were on uh, high doses of morphine, for example, because of that. And then when they were released in the hospital, it took them a while to be tapered off of their opioids because they developed a chemical dependency and when they, when they come to see me for another surgical problem down the road, they asked me not to prescribe an opioid for the pain because they got addicted the last time. And again, this a lot of this has to do with educating the public too, because that's not an addiction. That's a dependency. And you can see that with a whole host of different types of drugs from beta blockers to anti-epileptic drugs where your body gets, uh, goes into withdrawal if you if, when you've been on it for a long time. But that's not, addiction is compulsive use despite negative consequences. At least that's the, simplistic definition that most uh, addiction specialists uh, like to use. Um, There's an interesting question I got here I think might be good for, well, for either of you. Uh, uh, Anonymous says people who do not drive cars well pay more insurance premiums than those who drive well. If you legalize drugs, how do you assure that people who do not misuse drugs do not end up paying for the costs of misuse how about trevor you want to pick that one first and and yeah it's uh it's
3: it's like alcohol i mean this is again like like when i made the comments of the initial comments um you know the social costs of alcohol are are immense if you just i mean the benefits are great too but if you're just talking about costs uh they're immense and so and so people have you know whether it's their own personal health whether it's trunk driving whether it's spousal abuse you can name it but, but no one is you know with again with alcohol we're we're being more mature and say, okay, you know, if we discover that twenty percent of the users are problematic users, as, as I said, as the case generally for all drugs, the 80-20 rule applies. Uh, the answer to that is not to ban all the other eighty percent from using it uh, and make it dangerous for the twenty percent. That's that's what we're doing with the other drugs. So the answer is, as you said, in nineteen eighty, early eighties, uh, when you had sort of a realization that there was a drunk driving problem. Right. And that, you know, in the 70s and stuff, it was not very socially, it was not socially looked down upon as much. The penalties for drunk driving weren't weren't huge, Uh, but there was a big awareness that drunk driving was a huge problem. But the response to that was not to ban alcohol because drunk driving is a huge problem. You go after the negative, the externalities, the problematic users, you make regulations about the kind of stuff that the question was about. When people's drug use hurts other people, uh, you try and address that. You don't come up with the sledgehammer of prohibition and harm everyone in the process. Uh,
2: I'd like to say just one thing mm-hmm. about that. Uh, I, I like the questioner to think about uh, um, this for exa- an example. Um, I, I, I paid t- taxes for my home and so forth for the local schools for a number of things. My children didn't go to school here. They they are uh, beyond the school age now, but I still pay taxes. I still support the local schools as part of my patriotic duty. You know, so this notion that uh, I don't want to pay for other people's uh, we need to get out of that mindset. I mean, as members of society, we pay for things that we don't use all the time as part of our taxes. Um, That sort of notion, that mindset in the face of this horror is childish. And so I want people to think about uh, what we're currently doing to people who, for example, who are in chronic pain and they can't get their medications and there some are committing suicide people who are going to jail, people who are not allowed to um, uh, live the promise of the United States, far more important. How about we get people to focus on those issues? And how about we get, how about we change the sort of culture such that um, it's our responsibility to take care of our uh, other citizens, as opposed to this selfish bullshit. Um, Okay, here's
0: one that uh, I have my own views on, but I'm gonna let my guests answer it first. Uh, pharmacist Dan Snyder says, Dan Snyder says, were free, free-flowing opioids actually an example of legalization? Uh, did it not lead to more addicts and much more overdose deaths? Illegal stops, something from, stops someone from trying and therefore causes 20% less addicts. Portugal is a great example that works it's not outright legalization. Switzerland now follows Portugal's example. Uh, which one of you would like to tackle that one first? Uh, Trevor, why don't you go a uh, first? Yeah. I mean,
3: again, I, I'd, I would be interested in the definition of outright legalization, uh, for example. So what I said, if you, if you made heroin prescribable for compulsive users or for different situations um, and you increased access, I mean, you could have a situation as, as we know that uh, it, one of the benefits of this when it comes to opioids uh, is that you give access to users. So UK did this from the you know mid-20s in Britain they had a similar issue with people using opioids. Uh, in the teens and twenties, uh, they came. They had people come over here and witness what we did, and they came back to Britain and said, "No, we're not going to do that because what they did is they created a black market. They created drug dealers. They created all these problems. And so, especially from about 1925 to about 1970, there was a robust system of where users could go to a go to a doctor, go to a clinic, and get heroin and go about their day. And one of the benefits of that situation is that you kind of if you dry up the drug dealers, I mean, the, the drug dealers sort of did, didn't have a market and they're not trying to expand them. There's no one trying to expand the market. There's no drug dealer out there trying to get new people hooked for the purposes of their own bottom line. They're just people who are already chemically dependent upon opioids who go and get it re- responsible mature way. And so he's the question is correct in the sense that if you did legalize. Generally speaking, use will go up, uh, and that's just how things are. Use of marijuana definitely went up when they legalized marijuana in my home state of Colorado. Uh, but the question, going to especially Dr. Hart's book, are we treating people like grownups? I mean, are we are we treating drug people who are are we treating them like grownups and saying, okay, use goes up. Uh, problematic use goes out, at least save lives. That's that's what happens. So it's true. Prohibition does dissuade some people from using. That's after alcohol
0: true. pro after alcohol prohibition was was ended. Uh, alcohol use actually went up for a while, and then it oh yeah it, it didn't return it until like the,
3: until like the early sixties. I mean, the alcohol use definitely went down during prohibition, uh, but but that's where you have to have the mature conversation about are we treating people like grownups? Yeah, unless you just think that alcohol use is per se wrong. That was something to do. <laughs> right, let's say it went
0: up for a while and then it temporized and now it's been you know, relatively, actually it's down compared to what, where it was maybe 40, 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to say something too in response to that. I'm going to do moderator's privilege. Uh, He said, aren't free-flowing opioids an example of legalization? Actually, I think what he means is the prescription, uh, the the high prescribing of opioids to patient in pain. Well, it's an example of quasi-legalization because the only way people could get those opioids is if they got a permission slip from a doctor and they had to convince the doctor that they were in pain. Um, Actually, what led to the high numbers of opioid, prescription opioids initially responsible for the overdose deaths was the fact that we have prohibition. So that uh, opioids in excess of the amount that were necessarily needed got diverted into the black market where people who wanted to use drugs recreationally preferred these prescription opioids. I can't blame them because they had quality control like uh, Carl was talking about. I mean, I would tell a person who, if a person came to me and told me, I'm gonna use a drug tonight recreationally, I made up my mind, you're not gonna stop me. I got this bottle of Oxycontin I stole from my friend's medicine cabinet. I also got this bag that I got from a guy on the street. He tells me it's heroin. Which of these two should I use? I'm going to use one. You can't stop me. I said, well, use those pills because I know exactly what's in there. We know the dose. We know there's nothing else in there that could surprise you. So that's what happened. And then when when uh, when policymakers responded by basically punishing doctors who prescribed what they considered to be too much, the uh, the supply of, of, of uh, prescription pills that could be diverted into the black market got less. So the people who wanted to use recreationally just moved over to the next thing available, which at first was heroin, and then became heroin and fentanyl. Uh, you like to say, I see you nodding your head, Carl, you'd like to say anything about that?
2: No, I think you covered it well. I, I, I think nothing to add.
0: Okay, um, I'm going to see if we have another. We have lots of questions. Um, uh, Jacob James Rich would like to ask. Would anyone like to comment on efforts to include medical co- cannabis prescription in, in prescription drug monitoring programs? For for viewers who don't know that every state now has these programs that keep track of every single drug prescribed. That's a that's a, a controlled substance, and uh, law enforcement uses that to go after doctors and or patients that they consider to be, uh, using these drugs the wrong way. Um, so there's a movement afoot to include medical cannabis among the drugs it has been proposed in the prescription drug, uh, uh, database, uh, any thoughts on that?
3: Uh, I mean, PDMPs are pretty crazy anyway, but doing it with medical cannabis is, uh, I, I, it's, it's, it's beyond nuts. I mean, no one has ever overdosed in their entire life on on marijuana, uh, and so I, you know, you could make a case for people, you know, who are putting themselves into problematic situations and might die because of opioids, but no one has ever died of marijuana. So it's it's nuts.
0: Uh, Carl's well, like I said. I think yeah, we're on the same page. Okay. Right all now. right, I got a, I got a question. I got a question here from uh, uh, Paul Larkin. He says ninety eight percent of all federal bills to decriminalize cannabis never address the drug impaired pro- driving problem. And the other 2% just punt the problem for further study. Uh, that is now how not how, quote, adults should address this problem. What do you recommend be done to address the problem of impaired uh, driving, uh, for example, under the influence of cannabis? Oh, is, well, Paul, I mean,
3: yeah. I, I, Paul's a friend and, and he's a lawyer too. So first of all, I think he would appreciate the fact that the, I mean, it should be, this Fed should get out of the way and allow for federalism and states to experiment with different ways of dealing with impaired driving under marijuana cannabis. Uh, and again, it's an interesting question, but that's why we have our laboratories of democracy. It's definitely, there should not be a federal law. There shouldn't be a federal drunk driving law. And there should not be a federal marijuana dry impaired driving law. Let states figure it out. And they again, states have done that with drunk driving. They lowered some have lowered the limits. Some have raised it. Some have increased the penalties. Some have not. So it's it's there's a lot of research to be done. But we should definitely have federalism at work and not some sort of one size fits all federal policy.
0: Carl, got nothing to add to that. No. Okay. Uh,
2: uh, uh, I'm just, yeah, uh, I I disagree. I'm just. Um, a lot of the questions sounds so um, restrictive and uh, yeah. uh, uh, paranoid. And I, just, I don't understand uh, uh, this free country. And but well, yeah, I agree.
0: There's uh, another question that's come up is uh, what what are your thoughts about you know drug courts? A lot of a lot of uh, so called enlightened prosecutors have moved to drug courts as opposed to just putting people in cages uh which in my but i i, I don't want to give my answer I, go ahead call you answer it
2: uh so uh we started out this conversation talking about uh, the original promise of the country uh, people should be right uh, to, should have the right to alter their consciousness and so if somebody's asking about drug uh court kind of questions it's like um clearly we know we don't support that i don't support people having to deal with the criminal justice system simply because they are using uh, substances um, and i support uh, legal regulation of these compounds so why would you ask me a question about drug courts judges don't have any special knowledge about drugs um, it's just the continuation of this uh, prohibition or this po- uh, prohibitive uh, state. And so um, uh, uh, think more broadly, think about freedom. That's what I like people to be thinking about here. Yeah, that was the whole idea
0: was to
3: think anew, right to. Here, here. I'm with Carl. But I will I will say one little thing about drug courts, and it goes to one of Carl's earlier points. When you start listing all the people who benefit from the drug war, one of them is the rehab industry, which has a huge amount of problems to with it, uh, to say the least. And so there are many, many people who are ordered by drug courts to go into rehab, and it's not going to help them out. Ultimately, they pay a lot of money for it. That's another industry that really likes prohibition.
0: Right. It uh, looks like our time is up. Uh, this was... Uh very interesting and stimulating conversation. I hope that people who are watching uh, open their minds a little bit to new approaches because uh, doubling down on the same thing that we've been doing wrong for the last 51 years, I don't think you should expect to see any better result. Um, And for those of you who came in late and missed the beginning or who wanna see it again, this is recorded and sometime within the next 24 hours will be available on the Cato Institute website uh, for viewing on demand and you can feel free to share it with others at that time. And I'd like to thank uh, Carl Hart, my colleague, Trevor Burris and Congressman Earl Blumenauer for uh, participating in this very important conversation. Uh, Thank you very much.